Good morning. Uh, my name is Winston Coltart, for those who don't know me. It's also Winston Coltart, for those who do know me. Uh, but uh, uh, I'm a ministry resident here, and uh, as always, it's just a, a real joy to be able to, to share God's Word with you today. Um, I want to start out today by asking a question. How we doing, we, this is, by the way, is the last in a series of being a witness for Jesus in the book of Acts. Um, and uh, so thinking about being a witness, how do we witness to people, uh, to cultures that are foreign to us um, and, and maybe even contain elements that we find greatly distressing? How do we go about showing uh, the love of Christ to people such as these? Um, And the passage that we are going to be looking at today is Acts chapter 17. Um, I I think intuitively, our knee-jerk reaction when when confronted with a culture that is so different to us um, is we want to be like a dog, barking at them as if they're sheep. All we see is all the wrong things that we do, and we just want to bark, go in the other direction, this is what you're doing wrong, this is what you're doing wrong, repent, repent, repent. But actually, if you've ever watched a sheepdog herding sheep, you will notice that 99% of the time, the sheepdog isn't trying to convince the sheep to go in the other direction. Most of the time, the sheepdog is using the momentum of the trajectory of the direction that the sheep are already going in. And, and, and using that momentum, it guides them to where they wouldn't go on their own. But nonetheless, it's not opposing their direction so much as working with their direction and, and using their momentum to take them where they need to go. And I think here in Acts chapter 17... Uh, We see Paul doing this, coming alongside them like a sheepdog um, and and using the good directions that they're moving in uh, to to take them to something even better. Um, And so I'm going to ask you to do something very unbaptist this morning, um, and that is to remain seated while I read uh, the scripture. That's not because I want you to have any less reverence for God's word. Uh, that's just because it's rather a long passage. Um, I think it's, it's helpful to, to have a little bit of the con, uh, context. So I'm going to be focusing on verses 22 to 29, um, but I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Um, so Paul's second missionary journey, he arrives in Athens, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Now Athens was the intellectual capital of the world. Now this is the city that Socrates and Plato and Aristotle all came from. Um, And these two... uh, famous, prominent schools of philosophy, the Epicureans and the Stoics, both had their roots in the city of Athens. Um, And and so um, Paul is interacting here with some intellectual superpowers. 
um, and they ask, uh, they, they, they have a debate with him, and so we, we see how this unfolds. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Oropagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're presenting. The Oropagus was the place in Athens where hearings were heard. A number of people I see this morning have been there. Um, and it's this big rock in the city of, of Athens that, that, that people uh, would discuss ideas at and, and debate. Um, tell us this teaching you're presenting because what you say sounds strange to us. And we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Sounds a little bit like us today. Um, so, now we are about to get into the crux of the text that we are going to be looking at. But before I get there, please notice verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he noticed the, the, the idols and he was deeply distressed about it. Um, I think we can take from this, word, uh, from this verse that there's nothing inherently wrong about being deeply distressed when you are confronted with a culture. Um, yes, we need to be careful because we are all so often blind to, to um, the deficiencies in our own culture. Um, and, and very cognizant of, 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 of those in others. Um, and so there's, there's need for caution. Um, but we all know that uh, as good as every culture is, there are things that are wrong in each one of them. And so there's nothing wrong with being distressed when we see something bad about a culture. The question is, what do we do when we see it? How do we go about addressing that problem? Um, and as we continue in this passage, we see Paul doing it in such a beautiful and strategic way. Let's carry on in verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live all over the face of the earth, and has determined the appointed times and the boundaries of where he lived. He did this so that they might reach out and find him. Though he is not far. Sorry, I'm going to read that again. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are all his offspring. 
since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear more from you about this again. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. What a beautiful text this is, Lord God. Um, I thank you that we have a faith worth sharing. Um, and I pray that, that as we study this text, you would open up our eyes to, to wiser, more tactful, more loving ways uh, to share this incredible message um, with, with those who need to hear it. Um, we love you, Lord God. I love all these people, and I just pray that you'd bless us all. Amen. So, Paul is setting out to address a culture he finds deeply distressing. And he opens up with a bit of a sly comment. He says, people of Athens, I see you are extremely religious in every way. Well, how would have his listeners taken this? Probably about the same as you would take it if I came up to you and I said, I see you are extremely religious in every way. You're not quite sure whether to say thank you or whether to say I beg your pardon. It's sort of this two-edged compliment. Is he being serious or snarky? Or, um, and yet, in a way, Maybe already he's starting to win some of their hearts. Because what does he say? He says, I see. Paul had been observing this culture. Paul had been getting to know the people that he was now interacting with. And this is at the heart of all effective evangelism. You need to know the people You need to know their ways, their practices, their customs, their their fears, their insecurities. There's no way we can effectively minister to people who we are ignorant of. People want to be known. Um, And so that's why when Paul's walking around that city, he's walking around with his eyes open and he is seeing. I see that you are extremely religious in every way. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Paul sees something, this altar, something that everyone who was there that day would have seen themselves, was familiar with, would have recognized. that There were so many different gods in the city of Athens. And it's almost as if they just had to set an altar up because, it, it, you know, we want to make sure that we're not offending any god. We know, we, we know there's so many gods out there, and, and we sort of 
flattering the vanity um, of, of each one of them, but what happens if we've missed one? So let's just set up an altar, sort of a catch-all altar to the unknown God uh, so we don't offend him. And Paul picks up on this altar, and he uses it to springboard into his sermon. He says, there is a God out there. You guys are, recognize the fact that you don't understand everything about God. There are things about God that you don't know about. He picks up on a question that the culture is asking, that they are aware that they do not have the answer for. And he says, it is this God that I proclaim to you. In doing this, he has captured his audience's attention. He knows what the culture is concerned with, and he is going to speak to it. And, and he, he, he launches into saying how God created uh, everything, um, heaven and earth, and is Lord of them all. Um, and uh, as we start to move into verses 26 through to 27, um, we run into some fascinatingly beautiful problems. So Paul is, is talking about God, how God's made everything. He's talking about how we seek after uh, him. And then he wants to correct them. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that God is far away. And to back up this claim, he, he, he goes in verse 28 and says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are his offspring. This is a very odd thing for Paul to do. He is using Greek poets, the poems of, of these Greek writers, to explain things to them about God. These are, are two different poems that he's quoting here, and both of these poems are about Zeus. Now, you've, you've heard of Zeus, right? Zeus was a god conceived of in the image of man. Zeus is a capricious god, a promiscuous god. There's no more pagan a conception of God than Zeus. There's no more blasphemous conception of God than Zeus. Zeus is an abhorrent god. And yet Paul uses these poems about Zeus to explain to his listeners something about God. And you want to say, Paul, no, this is, this is going too far. Yes, it's good to get to know the culture. Yes, it's good to use the things from the culture. But how dare you use this poem about Zeus and say, well, this Line from the poem is actually true about Yahweh, about the living God. Zeus and Yahweh are not the same person. It's a fascinatingly beautiful problem. Uh, and it's one that I think we start to see uh, some key clues to the answer to as we go back up and we look at the end of verse 26 and into 27. Um, let's start at the beginning of verse 26. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed, by, uh, uh, appointed times 
and the boundaries of where they live. So God has determined the times and the boundaries of human existence. God is in control of all things. God is in control of space and time. Everything that relates to you and to me are in the hands of the good, wise God. Why does God control all things? Why does God determine the boundaries and times of where we live? Verse 27 tells us, He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps reach out and find Him. So God is in at work in all of his creation to, to stir up in people's hearts a desire to seek him, a, a desire to reach out and perhaps even find him. One of the most important scriptures in the New Testament um, about evangelism is, is Romans 10. If you have the Bible in front of you, just the next book over, uh, why don't you turn to Romans 10? Um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with this text, but Romans 10, starting in verse 13. Uh, and I think as we look at this text, we start to, to, to see more um, of this answers to this question of, of how Paul can use these Greek poets. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him who they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obey the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. This is a wonderful basis for evangelism. People are not going to believe the gospel unless they hear the gospel. And so we need to go out and we need to articulate the gospel to our neighbors. But too often when we read this passage in Romans chapter 10, we stop there. But Paul asks a fascinating question after that. Verse 18, but I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did, he answers. And then he goes and quotes Psalm 19, verse 4. Their voice has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the end of the earth. That Part of Psalm 19 is talking about God's testimony about himself in the natural world, in creation, through the sun and the stars. And so what is Paul saying here in Romans? He's saying, go out and share the gospel for the love of God. Go out and tell people about the great salvation that there is in Jesus. But don't for one moment think that you are doing this in a world that is barren of his testimony. No, no, don't you know that, that not one facet of creation 
There's not one facet of creation that doesn't scream his name, that doesn't tell people about who he is. When we are going out bearing witness to Christ, we are not doing it in isolation. We are doing it in a world that is saturated with testimony and witness to him. And Romans 1 helps us understand that this testimony that creation bears to Christ doesn't entirely go unreceived because Romans 1 tells us that, that all people know God in some sense. And so this is a hugely helpful theological foundation to work with when we are interacting with people from other cultures or any type of non-believer. We can know that even though they are going to get so many things wrong about God, God is speaking to them from all creation, and they receive some of that knowledge. And so they do know some true things about God, some true things about reality. And as we go out like Paul with eyes open, uh, consciously trying to get to know these individuals, trying to get to know their culture, we need to recognize the truth and the goodness in that culture, and we need to go from there to, to lead them to something better, to lead them to something fuller. And so maybe you're interacting with an atheist brother or sister, um, and you can say something like, brother, I, I love the fact that you are so passionate about science. You're so passionate about what can be known, and, and, and your mind is so active. Um, you're recogni recognizing something good and true and healthy. And then you can probe and say, but, but, I mean, help me to understand this, because surely if our minds came together through time and chance, they can't actually be helpful in, in arriving at truth. And so your atheism doesn't seem to square very well with your, your love for knowledge. Or we can go to our dear Muslim brothers and sisters, and we can say, Surah 2, verse 256 says there is no compulsion in religion. And I love that surah. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. How could there ever be compulsion in religion? Because religion is not a blind adherence to rules and regulations. True religion is a loving relationship with a loving God. And of course then you, you can walk into a, a conversation about what it means uh, to have a loving relationship with God and, and who God really is. Or after affirming the beauty of Surah 2, 256, you can say, well, well, brother, if there's no compulsion in religion, then, then surely even, even though you grew up in a Muslim home, um, even though that's all you've ever known, uh, if Jesus has revealed himself to you as true, you should, you, you, you should be free to follow him. You don't need to be compelled to remain in Islam if Jesus is true and Jesus can free you from your sins. What are we doing in both of these cases? We're recognizing the truth 
in that worldview. We're recognizing what is good, and we're affirming it and using that to, to wield it against the, the, the powers of deception over that person. Um, we're using truth to expose error. And why is this a legitimate thing for us to do? Well, that is because it is precisely what Paul does in this passage. After quoting these Athenian poets, not Athenian, Greek, sorry. He says, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then, since this is true, We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Yes, I agree with you, we are God's offspring. But that means that this practice of buying down to a little thing made out of wood, this side, is absolutely abominable. And without missing a breath, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul, the sheepdog, has been running alongside the sheep, moving with them in the direction that they're already going with, guiding them, guiding them, and now he has them at the gate of the fold. And for the first time in the story now, he barks and he pleads with them, Go in that direction. Repent and believe because there is no other name under heaven or earth by which we can be saved. The plea is to repent. And this plea goes to, out to you where you are seated, seated right here today. Repentance is something that we all desperately need. Whether we have been walking with Jesus for decades and decades, or whether we have never given our lives to him. The call is to repentance. It is a a great obligation, but also a great joy. There is freedom, there is hope, there is power. And so my prayer for you is that as you interact with people um, who are not from a Christian worldview, that you would be distressed with those, those aspects of the person's character, of their culture, that does not conform to Scripture, um, but that you would come alongside them and you would affirm them in, in the ways that you can, um, and through that you would open their eyes. Uh, to that which isn't true and that which does not honor God. Um, Let let me pray. Um, Father God, um, I I do just thank you for our brother Paul. I thank you for how you filled him with the Spirit um, and um, how he teaches us so much about what it means to be a witness for you. I thank you, Lord God, that we are your offspring And that though you do not dwell in temples made by human hands, you have delighted to dwell in us. In consistency with this, Lord God, I pray that we would repent, that we would turn to you, 
and that we would be faithful and loving witnesses to the resurrected Messiah. I ask this in your name. Amen.